text. Uh, we look to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 8, and I'll read the whole chapter for context, but we'll, we have a few uh, verses that we're looking at this morning. Uh, verses 8 to 13 will be uh, the subject of our study, but we'll, uh, we'll read verses 1 to 13. I'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible Translation. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 reads, Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he is not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. However, not all men have this knowledge, but some being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge, Dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to to stumble. May God bless the reading of his word. This sermon is entitled Commended to God. And the reason that I believe that is a fitting way to look at this particular passage, because Paul in this section has set out to establish an answer to a question that we must ask. I believe that it is a question that Paul uh, certainly deals with as a central piece to this particular chapter. And that question is, how are we commended in God's sight? Or how are we commended to God? So how are we commended to God? For again, what he is dealing with and using as an example is he is using the blending of pagan use for food as though it were sacrificed to idols, and yet also establishing what role does sacrifice food play as it related to our righteous standing before God? So what Paul is establishing is it is not a trivial matter, but it is a foundational matter. Because what he's dealing with is food or sacrifice meat as an example of this. But really he's answering the question, how are we commended to God? How are we deemed righteous before a holy God? And so I believe that, as we talked about last time, he's dealing with the stoic mindset that really had the idea that we just go through our lives and we endure life. And your righteous standing is in your ability to endure life, your ability to not be shaken on either side by life's uh, trauma or to show this over exuberance and enthusiasm in the face of life's joys. But it is to remain stoic. 
to be someone who is unflappable. Well, to the Stoic philosophers, that in their heart of hearts was righteousness. And then to the Epicureans, you find them in Acts 17. To them, it was uh, the enjoyment of life, hedonism, to simply enjoy life for what it is. And that in that they found their righteousness, that they lived a life of pure enjoyment, not uh, not connected to God, not connected to Christ, but just enjoying life as a means to its own end. Uh, that was where they found their righteous standing. And then you see the Jews and for the Jews, uh, especially of apostate Judaism, they found their righteous standing in the sacrifices that they did that were not connected to the God to whom they were supposed to sacrifice. And I'm talking about apostatized Judaism. For with them, they viewed food as one thing that they were certainly to consume, but there were also dietary restrictions. And in those restrictions, they would see themselves as being righteous before God. And so you have this world before us as we look in the Bible that is dealing with how one views food. Now, why are we dealing with this? Well, it's as I said, I believe that if it is left to the truth to deal with something, then you must certainly believe that that truth will come under attack. And the simplicity of what God has provided, food to be consumed and nourished and as a blessing to our body to be digested and ways to be eliminated from our body so that we are not carrying waste in our bodies. But none of these things commend us to God. It is simply the act that God has designed for us to replenish ourselves and to be fueled and to take care of our bodies uh, in the time that we have upon this earth. But you see how this can become a central point, especially when you tie this context to the factions. And so here what you have is not simply pagan practice, but you have a religious pagan practice that has worked its way into Corinth in such a way that people's consciences were being wounded. And so I believe that's where we find Paul dealing with this issue. How are we commended to God? How are we commended to God? First, Paul deals with this specifically in the verse right above our text in verse 7. Verse 7 of chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians reads, However, not all men have this knowledge, but some being accustomed to the idol until now. So he's saying there's some who are confessing to be believers, but they have lived their whole lives in regarding the, the food that they consume with reference to sacrificing to pagan idols. And so he says, until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol. So they don't know any other way. And they're being brought out of that way that they once knew. And their conscience being weak is defiled. So now they're, you're dealing with a defilement of the conscience. Now, I believe that there is a certain way in which you have to understand this context. You have both pagans who are trying to profess to be religious... And you have those who are Christians who are trying to steer clear of paganism. And I think that those worlds at times, they collide. And I believe in Corinth, those worlds collide. And so you see that Paul is walking through, so to speak, a landmine of trying to help believers understand why you must not be joined to the pagans, but how you can still, by appearance, do certain things that the pagans perhaps have taken and perverted. 
And those things aren't inherently unrighteous, such as consuming food. Because that is a practice that pagans have done. They, they have just, as we said in the last sermon, they have assigned power and meaning to those things. And those things do not have power uh, because idols don't have power. And the meaning is certainly not established with the pagans. And so Paul is trying to help and recapture what it really means uh, to offer a sacrificial heart to God and to be able to eat with liberty and freedom. And even if you were to peek down to chapter 9, he goes right to it with regard to his apostleship. But here where we stand, he will deal with how this understanding helps us understand our place with one another in fellowship. Now, again, I believe that everything we have said so far deals specifically with the factions as Paul has addressed them in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and also in chapter 3. And I believe that that's the case because Paul is helping them recapture the essence of true fellowship. It's why he brings in the need to build one another up, to edify one another in humility, to not sear or defile or weaken or wound one another's conscience. And so I believe that what Paul is dealing with is not only how we are commended to God, but how then might we fellowship as we are commended to God. And so that is just as important because he's writing to the Corinthian church. He's writing to the church. But in verse 8, but food will not. He goes right to what will not commend us to God. Food will not commend us to God. Food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. Now I'll tell you. You may not realize this, but this issue is still before us in modern society. You have the health cults, but then you also have the cults that are not necessarily health cults. And there's just a hedonistic approach to nourishment. And there's almost this sense in which what is lost is God has provided food to help us uh, in our nourishment for our bodies. That really is what it comes down to. But we do not find our righteousness in what we eat or what we refrain from. We find our righteousness in Christ alone. And so that's what Paul is dealing with. The food itself will not commend us to God. Now, that's such a simple statement, and we may be a bit removed from the things that I've said. But if you think about it, this is such a sticking point at that time that Paul has to make the statement as it is. And what he's saying about the knowledge part of it is we all can assume that there are those who do not view food as a sacrificial means to their idols. We can't assume that that is, uh, that that is something that is not working out in their minds and in their hearts. We have to assume that the pagan will pervert everything that is before the pagan, even the good things. And so Paul is saying we are certainly armed with this knowledge. But he's also saying if one consumes food sacrificed to, a, to an idol in a manner that pays deference to the idol, in a manner, it's how you do what you do and why you do what you do. That's why I've always said that motive matters to God. Why and how matters to God. But in that sense, in a, if you eat and consume food, particularly meat, in a manner that pays deference to the idol, it can defile the conscience. It can defile the conscience. 
And I believe this certainly has spiritual implications. And we will see that through uh, and we will see it also uh, in the verses that follow. But I also believe we see a caution from the apostle. That is just because it is cultural does not mean it is acceptable or profitable. Because, again, what we're seeing in this text, you have to understand the historical context is many of these practices were tied to the culture. They were tied to the culture. And so the people were doing them in a sense of cultural pride. It's not necessarily that. And I do believe there is an overt sense uh, of boldness in idol worship that took place at that time. But I also believe that there's a subtlety. That this is a cultural thing that's happening with food. And Paul is eliminating both of those things. So I believe that these have spiritual implications. Again, just because it is cultural does not mean it's acceptable or profitable. It may go with the culture, but the culture may have joined it to the idol. Where you see this today is the belief system called today multiculturalism, which conflates belief and culture together and says both are true. Well, I believe that started long ago, but it certainly expresses itself here. The answer for that is liberty, freedom. And I believe you see that here. Look at verse nine. But take care. Take care that this liberty of yours, because you can eat what you want. Take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block. To the weak. There's a lot to work out there in the short time we have together. But some were eating with liberty because it meant for them to eat the meat and the food set before them was a means of nourishment. They were eating with liberty. And they were also certainly eating, as Paul said earlier in our text, they were eating with the knowledge that the food had been sacrificed to idols. But they were also armed with the knowledge that God is one, the only true God. So they have all this working, uh, working itself out as they are being observed in their eating. But then the question is, will refraining or consuming the food commend us to God either way? Again, explicitly, Paul says no. He says no. Here's the issue. We are not inherently wicked for eating. This is what Paul is saying to the Corinthians. We are not inherently wicked for eating, nor inherently righteous for refraining. Nor is the vice versa of that true. We are not inherently righteous for eating, nor inherently wicked. Inwardly wicked for refraining. But instead, Paul wrote that the Christians there possessed liberty. They possess liberty. Now, with liberty comes the recognition of the believer's conscience and not just my conscience, but your conscience. So where you see people enslaved to one another and enslaved to one another's conscience, they are not free. And so what Paul says is you're free. But in that freedom, here is here is a part of that freedom to regard the believer's conscience, to regard the believer's conscience altogether. Because that's the essence of true freedom. He wrote there that they possessed this. You remember when he introduced the letter to them in his introduction, 
that he spoke of their freedom in Christ. He spoke of their salvation. And all throughout, you see him begin to try to deal with their sanctification, them them being cleansed by God and what that all looks like. But in verse 9, he goes to it and he deals with liberty related to the Christian. But what this does not mean is that one is free to cause believers to stumble. The Christian is free, but the Christian is never free to cause other believers to stumble. It means believers are free and must use discernment and discretion when exercising their freedom. That you're free, but you have to use discretion. Because what's at stake is you can cause someone to stumble by practicing your freedom. It's not that you want to be enslaved and that you want them to be enslaved. It's not that you want them to remain weak and you remain strong. It's that to build them up, there may be times in which your freedom in its exercise may not be the best application of that liberty. And so in that context, Paul is pointing to food. Next, he'll point to his apostleship. But he points to this food. And I believe he's pointing to this because it was an issue that was brought to him. I believe these are issues. Paul isn't simply trying to, on some general level, deal with certain things. I think he's speaking specifically to issues that are raised. And he's writing to them to help them understand how to navigate the world before them. Verse 10. For if someone sees you who have knowledge, well, what knowledge is he referring to? I believe the knowledge he is referring to is in verses five and six. If someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? So this is a very specific problem. It is to eat the food sacrificed to idols in the idol's temple. Well, What in the world are Christians doing in the idol's temple? Well, let me help you understand something. The common marketplace in the Greco-Roman Empire was a place of consecration to the idols. So where Christians did their business was in the sphere of the religious structure of the empire. And that religious structure of the empire was often directly related and woven together and conflated with idol worship. It's why when Paul is... Approaching Mars Hill, he's walking through the marketplace in the city and he becomes quite agitated in his spirit because he's surrounded by he's engulfed by it. And so there wasn't this uh, secular and sacred split that tries to express itself in the modern society. I don't believe it is actually expressed, but there was the idea that either you worship Caesar and the gods or you worship Jesus the Christ. But there was no room for Jesus the Christ, so all pagan worship was acceptable in the public place. What was unacceptable was so-called atheism. But people sacrificed their lives and their earnings and their foods to the gods in the common marketplace. So in one sense, there's no escaping it. Now what Paul is saying is, well then how do I as a believer navigate a world such as that, where it's engulfed with paganism? I don't believe that has changed that much. It may not be meat 
or food or things sacrificed to idols. But we do live in a time where our culture is engulfed by paganism. And so how do we live in that context? Well, I believe that, again, there was this cultural blending, cultural blending. Okay, I want to be careful in how we understand it. This cultural blending between the Christians and pagans in Corinth that provides our context for verse 10. I believe that happens today in maybe ways that you haven't thought of. Perhaps our holidays that we commemorate. And Paul will speak to that here in Corinth and he speaks to that in Colossae. One regards one day this way, another regards it this way. But it's a matter of the conscience. <clears throat> However, let me be clear. I am not saying that in this cultural blending that uh, Christians do not have obligations to God. I'm not saying that. I'm not making an excuse for what took place. I'm not saying that there weren't consequences if they persisted in sinful activities that empowered others around them to sin freely. There were consequences. And some of those consequences you're seeing here in Corinth. But what I believe that Paul is doing is he wrote negatively about a circumstance that actually was taking place. I don't believe he's dealing with hypotheticals. I believe this stuff was happening. But he wrote negatively to provide a positive example. If one has the knowledge he mentioned in the verses above our text, <clears throat> nam namely the knowledge that we see in verse five, for even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. Listen to this. This is the knowledge. Yet for us, there is but one God, the father from whom are all things. And we exist for him and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things. And we exist through him. This is the knowledge he's talking about that one must possess. But then he says, look at verse seven. However, not all men have this knowledge. But he's saying, as we said before, when you look at knowledge uh, makes arrogant, it's when one possesses this knowledge, but does not employ it or apply it in such a way to build up their brother. It's simply having the knowledge of this, but you're not using it. And that's where the issue is. But what Paul is saying is it is important for Christians not to use this knowledge to tear down the faith and to tear down the consciences of those who are weaker in the faith and their conscience. That's what he's saying. It's important not to use the knowledge the wrong way, to misapply the knowledge. To take this and then mean I'm going to live in violation of God's commands. Because one could take it that way. In fact, the idea of living against the law, but hoping that the banner of grace will cover me even if I continue to sin, otherwise known as antinomianism, against the law. Paul rebukes that in Romans 6. Well, one could take what is said in verses 5 and 6 and begin to live in that way. One could say, listen, I know that. I know that God the Father is one. I know that the Lord Jesus Christ is one. We exist for him by whom are all things. We exist through him. But I'm going to go ahead and worship with the idols. God will sort it out. That's a wrong application. But armed with that knowledge, we are now compelled, responsible to apply it the right way. 
What this means is not that the weaker are content to be weak. You don't see that here. He says, take care in verse nine. The liberty of yours is not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. And then he says in verse 11, as we skip down for through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined. The brother for whose sake Christ died. OK, so now the weaker one belongs to Christ. They belong to Christ. Do they bear a certain responsibility for their weakness? Yes. But we as brothers and sisters bear a responsibility also for their strength. And so in this, it's not that they're content to be weak, but they are slow. Listen to this, because we know Christians like this. They are slow to bring their knowledge and the implications of that knowledge and practice to a close relationship. That really is what weakness is. It's one is slow to bring what they know. Now they know. So the issue is not necessarily knowing. So Paul doesn't say, well, they're ignorant. That's fine. No, they know. But the issue is to have the knowledge and to then have here is the implications. If I trace the knowledge and its consequences, good and bad, here are the implications. Well, for the Christian who is strong, the Christian who is strong always brings those two things together. The implications of what we believe, otherwise known as convictions, otherwise known as how I live in light of what I know. Well, there's some Christians who are just arriving to that point, that they're not at that point and therefore they are weak. And things come in and crowd out the ability to connect those things across various standards. Now, the direction of their relationship is that those things are being connected. But the point is, they're not able to always do that. So there are stronger believers and there are weaker believers. And what Paul is using here is that you have a culture before them that is severing the attempt to bring the knowledge and the application together. They're slow to do it. It's not that, they're, it's not that they never do it. It's that at times they're slow to be able to bring those together. I think for us, we see, we look out at a vast uh, evangelical landscape, and there are people that we know that are slow to bring what they know, and they know what they know, and then to apply what they know, and to then take the proper action. And we sit back and we scratch our heads, and we go, how come knowing what they know about the word, so they say, and knowing what they see Based on here's how then I should conduct myself, they can't bring that together quickly. Could be unbelief, but it could also be weakness. It could be weakness. Not all of us are as strong as we should be. We should be strengthened and be strengthening, but that's not always the case. And here Paul is using the food sacrificed to idols as an example. But here's a couple of things I want to bring out. Here's a couple of things I want to bring out. First, the knowledge applied here is in the sense that the one who is strong is cautioned not to use that knowledge to ruin the weak. So Paul holds the strong responsible. He holds them responsible. And I believe that this is verse 11 is an application, a direct application of what is said in verse 1. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, 
We know that we all have knowledge. We define that. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. So what he's saying is you being strong in these things do not ruin the weak in these things. Do not ruin them. Help them. Strengthen them. Help them bring these things together, but don't ruin them in the midst of it. And so Paul also, he identifies this one as a brother. He identifies him as a brother, one who is redeemed by Christ. He says he belongs to Christ. Christ died for him. He is one of the elect. But in this case, it is this that ruins him. It is the one who is the one who is claiming to be strong and not applying what he knows in the proper context. So listen, to possess knowledge of God's supremacy, because that's what Paul says in verses five and six. God is supreme over all things. And his all powerful nature, while not applying it in a way that builds up a brother's conscience and love. Well, Paul says it's sinful. It's sinful to misapply or fail to apply while possessing the knowledge to apply. So I believe that Paul is defining for us fellowship across so many levels, but also how then do the strong deal with the weak? Now, you don't see the weak taking advantage of the strong. The weak at times believe they're strong. That's the issue. But Paul is saying, I must caution you to help them marry their application and their knowledge together so that they have conviction and practice working to their benefit and their sanctification. But I believe he's more explicit because you have people who were arrogant in Corinth. You have people in modern society who are arrogant. You have people who know theoretically things about God and things about his word. And they live arrogantly because they don't apply it. And they don't apply it to Christians who need it. They just simply store it and they practice it theoretically and they practice it in a very undisciplined and untrained way in such a way so as to wound those who are weak. But I'll tell you what Paul is saying, and he's saying it to the Corinthians. It is sinful to have your knowledge misused. It is sinful to have your knowledge misused to wound the believing conscience. For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined. Ruined. Now, he's not talking about the knowledge simply possessing it. He's talking about the misapplication of it. The misapplication of it. Because no one is ruined by what he said in verses 5 and 6. We're not ruined by the belief of who God is, his self-existence, his eternal existence, his all-powerful nature, the understanding of him being the divine trinity, the person and work of Christ. We're not ruined by that. We're ruined by the misapplication of that knowledge. When someone says they're coming in the name of Christ, they're doing things in the name of Christ, and it doesn't look like how it should look related to the belief in Christ. And that's what's happening here. He says, for through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined. The brother for whose sake Christ died. Verse 12. And so he goes right to it. And so by sinning against the brethren, 
So he assumes it's sin to do this by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak. You sin against Christ. The strong have a responsibility to build up the weak. Not to keep them weak, but to build them up into strength. Because you know what happens? What will then happen is that they begin to build up the others who are weak. It's called edification. You're building each other up and applying knowledge in the right way. So it's not just to gain the knowledge. But Paul does say it is a sin. And he says it's a sin first against your brother, and then it's a sin against Christ. Why is it a sin? Why? Why would this be a sin? What is happening? Well, because it takes arrogance to tear down. He said that in verse 1. It takes, one has to be arrogant. Arrogant fueled by pride. To tear something or someone down. It takes love in and for Christ to build up. Now you can see sin interwoven in this, but Paul doesn't say permit sin. He doesn't say permitting sin is a way to alleviate the conscience or to pretend it's not sin and thus we alleviate the conscience. He says let's call it what it is and let's get to the solution. The solution is to be one who loves the brethren and loves God. We see that in verses 1 uh, to 3 in this passage. Love for one another and the love for God and to be known by God, to be loved by God, is to build up one another. There's people who talk about God and they don't love God. There's people who preach about God and they don't love God. They don't love God. There's people who preach to other people and they don't love the people. What Paul is saying, that is devastating. You're ruining people's consciences. For one, they're weakened because you're not giving them true spiritual nourishment. And another issue is you're building them up and empowering them in their arrogance. I believe that's why this is specifically tied to the factions. It's why this is the factions have done this. The factions have done this, taking God's men and putting them in a place where they had never intended to go. And Paul even disagrees with the whole idea of it. Hero worship and being enslaved to men, building a system around that. And then you already have the idols that the world believes are idols creeping in and people practicing those things. And then you even have the arrogance that says it's just food. What are we really talking about here? Because I believe that's the attitude. You know how I know? Because when we get to chapter 11, they begin to desecrate the Lord's table with that same mentality. We're just eating. We're hungry. And Paul says, you're looking at this entirely the wrong way. There should be a worshipful element to this. You have no problem feasting and sacrificing food to idols. So let me help you understand what it means to engage in the Lord's Supper. But it's sin. The knowledge of God's supremacy is... When joined to the love of God and being known by him, when you know that, when you know that God is supreme and when you love God and you're known by God, it's an effective tool of love for the brethren and to strengthen the brethren. When I know what I know about God and Christ and what he's accomplished in my existence, 
When I know all those things, that is effective and helps me to be effective in loving my brothers and my sisters and in building them up. The strength is shown in building up the weak to be strong. That's where the strength is shown. That's what Paul says. Ultimately, the issue, I don't want you to get lost in the details. The issue is, is it's not eating or refraining from eating. That's not the issue. Verse 8. If you look at verse 8, that's not the issue. Paul says food's not going to commend us to God. Why are we overburdened with food? You see how perverse Satan is? To take something so beautiful that God has created and to make it a thing of contention amongst believers. And to make it a thing of worship in the pagan heart and mind. We're not supposed to worship the food. We're supposed to consume the food and worship God. But he's saying it is a sin and it is to sin against Christ by participating in defiling the conscience. To take one's actions. And again, we'll leave most of this in its historical context. But I do think there are some things that apply. But it is... To participate in defiling the conscience. I'm sure you can think of so many ways that people can defile someone else's conscience. But in this situation, it is a sin against Christ to do that. Because they're to walk freely and we're causing them to stumble in that way. It is a serious offense to sin against Christ. It is a serious offense to sin against Christ. Look at verse 13. He connects it to what's said above. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble. I believe Paul really meant this. If food causes my brother to stumble, I'll never eat meat again. So that I will not cause my brother to stumble. But I believe that what Paul is saying here is you have to really believe and have faith in what verse 8 says. If Paul has to stop eating meat forever, I mean, praise God if brothers don't stumble. But what does it say about the church if they're believing that food will commend them to God in such a way that I can't eat meat anymore? It's the same as what Paul will say later in Hebrews. Oh, I intended to build up your spiritual nourishment, but I can only give you milk. I don't want to only give you milk, but I have to only give you milk, is what Paul says. So I don't believe that that is the solution, because this isn't the end of the letter. Look at what he says in verse 9-1. We'll cross over just a little bit as we end. He starts to ask some questions. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? We'll skip down to verse 3. My defense to those who examine me is this. Look at what he says. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Why should I refrain from eating if I'm free? You should be free so I can eat. And you should be free so we can eat together. And then you'll see as we barrel toward Israel's failures... And we look at our communion passage, you're going to see how this is all related. 
Because the problem in Corinth was that they were abusing food by way of desecrating worship to the Lord. And you'll see it creep into the Lord's Supper. You'll see. Did you ever think for a moment, even as we've read that passage, why are they just eating as though they're hungry? Well, they're commemorating the pagan feast. And Paul is saying, no, you're not here to eat because you're hungry. You're here to eat in consecration of yourself and commemoration and memoriam to the Lord Jesus Christ. You're here to drink for that purpose. And you're free to do those things without sacrificing the idols and without desecrating the Lord's Supper. And so I believe that he spells it out for us. If one must choose, however, as we end, I believe he says what he says in verse 13 for this reason. If one must choose between sinning against the brothers and Christ versus causing them to stumble, the choice is then to refrain from sinning against brothers in Christ. For Paul, as I said in chapter 9, he deals with this. It's always the choice because this is true freedom. Even to have to make that decision is free. It's to be free. It's liberating because true freedom builds up. The fact that I'm free, I don't want you to be enslaved. I don't want you to be brought low, to be torn down. I want you to be brought low in Christ, but not low in such a way where you are feeling yourself to be severed from him. So next week, when we look at the passage in chapter 9, we'll look at the apostles and how they were expected to live out their freedom in Christ. There will be much for us to consider when we look at that chapter. Let's pray.